Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, continues in his series called Sufficiency in Christ. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can do all of that and more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Do you want God to take your heart? Do you want him to do with your life what he wants? We return to 2 Corinthians, our survey of that book that I've called Sufficiency in Christ. We are sufficient for whatever we face, but that sufficiency is in Christ alone. Today's message is entitled Repentance from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And what I've chosen for the theme of this passage, just part of a verse, verse 9, the pain caused you to repent And change your ways. (laughs) I like that. They're already blowing. I like that. The the, the English word repent is translated from a Greek word. You might know it. You know it? Metanoia. Someone said up, up front. And what that means, meta means after. Noia. Oh, y'all are reading it up there. No wonder. I was really impressed here. Noia refers to thinking. So it literally means after think or after thought. And so that's an interesting perspective on repentance. But what it's talking about is that you have done something and then you thought differently about it afterwards. But its practical meaning for us is change of mind. Repentance isn't merely altering an opinion. It's not admitting a mistake. It's not merely apologizing. Because, let's be honest, some of us apologize whether we think we're wrong or not, just to escape an uncomfortable situation. Sometimes to just smooth something over. That is not repentance. It may not even be honest. Repentance refers to a total change in thought. Becoming convinced of the wrongness of something. Absolutely certain of its immorality. See, there's no debate about whether something should have been done or shouldn't have. There's no debate about whether my action or my thought was right or wrong. It's, we are absolutely certain because it's been revealed to us. So guilt is produced and it always changes behavior. If you think, well, maybe I shouldn't have done something and you're vacillating whether you ought to alter your behavior, that's not repentance. Repentance always means a change in direction, a change in understanding of the action. The background for today's passage, and I think that 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most personally pastoral letter. I mean, all of his letters are pastoral in nature, but this, in this one, he reveals some of his own pain, some of his own disappointment and heartache. Paul was experiencing rejection from the people in the church that he had, he loved the people in Corinth. He had led them to faith. He helped them to establish a church. He remained with the congregation for over 18 months to just teach them and and mature them. But after he left, the church allowed in false teachers. And these false teachers wanted to establish their own authority. Since they wanted to replace Paul as leader... They had to undermine him. So they attacked his character and his ministry. Some of the people in the church believed these false teachers' lies. 
And so they started following them. And the people too started criticizing and opposing Paul. Now, Paul went back once thinking, well, I can straighten this out. Have you ever walked into a situation thinking, oh, this is nothing. I know these people. I can fix this. Anybody ever do that? Did it ever blow up? Well, it blew up on Paul. Paul thought he knew these people. He was like their father. And so he shows back up, probably said a few things, and they much to his surprise, turned on him. That meeting, that visit went so badly that he decided not to go back. In fact, while he was there, one person attacked him, at least one person attacked him verbally, but all the other folks just stood back and said nothing, and none of them defended him. And it left Paul deeply hurt. So he didn't try to return again. He actually went to Ephesus and he wrote them a letter. It's referred to as a very stern letter, a harsh letter that rebuked the Corinthians. And the letter was delivered not by Paul, it was delivered by Titus. So Paul locked Paul left Ephesus after writing the letter and sending it by Titus. And he went to Macedonia. He arrived in Macedonia anxious for Titus' arrival because Titus would tell him what the people had to say about the letter. And like Paul, we'll learn not only what they thought about the letter, but we're also going to learn some of the effects of repentance. The first effect of resistance, I don't know if it comes in time order, but it does in this passage, is the restoration of relationships. So Paul arrived in Macedonia anxious. Verse 5, chapter 7. Look what it says. When we arrived in Macedonia... There was no rest for us. You ever been where you couldn't sleep? Why? Too much on your mind. Too much what? Stress, worry, anxiety. Well, that's what Paul was feeling. So we think of Paul, he was so mature, he never would have felt like that. Paul couldn't sleep, he couldn't relax. He couldn't settle down because he was concerned that his letter may have made things worse. Anybody ever sent a letter and regret it after the postman took it away? Oh, no, you don't use those things anymore, do you? Well, anybody ever push send? And the worst thing, an old-timey letter can be thrown away and the evidence is gone but that note you sent by electronically lives forever. Forever. So Paul wondered whether he would encounter a hostile environment. And he was also concerned about how these people would treat Titus. Because remember the setting. These people don't carry cash. And if they did... There's nowhere to spend it. There's no fast food. There are no restaurants. There are hardly any places to stay except people's houses. They relied on generosity. So Paul may have sent his assistant into a hostile crowd. And among that crowd there may have been, may have been no one willing to house him or feed him. See, we don't think about that, do we? But Paul was also worried about Titus's physical well-being from these people. Continue verse 5. We faced conflict from every direction. With battles on the outside because of... See, the people didn't want Paul to stay in Macedonia. They wanted him to leave there. 
and also fear on the inside. Paul had some heavy anxiety over this situation with the church. Verse 6. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, including Paul, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy. So was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you, the Corinthians. Titus revealed that the majority of these Corinthian believers repented. And they reaffirmed their support for Paul. And they reaffirmed their support for the truth that Paul taught, which greatly encouraged Paul. And so he continued. And when he told us how much you long to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I mean, Paul sounds like just a regular guy, doesn't he? And really a fairly sensitive one. Because he's, he's delighted that the people want to see him again. They want him to come back to town. And they regret what happened. And then he uses the word, how loyal you are to me. The word loyal, I don't think is, is as strong as the Greek. Because when we think of loyalty, I mean, we're loyal to teams. We're loyal to, you know, to, to things that don't have the level. Well, for some people, teams have, a, there's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of energy in their loyalty. But the, the Greek word can also be translated their zeal or their heat. And so loyalty or better zeal refers to having a motivation or an intensity to restore the relationship with Paul. It, it refers to a renewed fervor to defend him from further attacks. In other words, no complacency. No complacency. Have you ever been a conflict situation with someone and supposedly there was an apology and there was an attempt to reconcile. And yet one party stayed completely complacent. You ever seen that happen? And it completely frustrated you because you said, I thought this person wanted to, to restore this relationship. I thought this person wanted to put it back together. It could be a marriage. It could be a dating relationship. It could be a friendship. And one person has no motivation. When there's no motivation, when there's no zeal, there's no repentance. The Corinthians recognized that they had made a big mistake terrible error in judgment. They were persuaded, maybe they were manipulated, perhaps deceived. These false teachers may have actually been more eloquent than Paul. They may have been more slick, more polished. And they may have been willing to tell the people what they wanted to hear more than Paul was. And so they rejected Paul, and they started supporting these false teachers. See, Paul was a person that spoke truth, which meant he said things that irritated people. And so if there is someone speaking truth to you, and it's irritating you, it's easy for someone else to slide in and whisper in your ear and turn you against the very person who's confronting you. It's easy to gain an ally when you can find an enemy to oppose. It is easy to gain an ally 
if you can find an enemy to oppose. And so they used Paul as the enemy. Oh, he's telling you this stuff. That's not true. That's not true. You don't have to change this. You can still keep the law and you don't have to alter uh, the way you worship God. You can just, we'll just add Jesus into this. But these Corinthian Christians became sorry about their attitudes and actions after realizing first that their sin caused Paul real pain. You know, sometimes we want to deny that someone has hurt us. When in reality, showing the pain may be the very thing that changes somebody's heart and mind. In our culture, the word being sorry is usually or often a very shallow expression. Because a lot of times, I'm sorry is used to just smooth over something. But the Greek that's translated sorry, odermos, is better translated mourning, grieving, which causes moaning. In other words, this kind of repentance, when, when you're sorry at a level of repentance, you grieve over your actions. That's completely different than trying to just get away from it. They mourned. They felt agony. They felt deep regret over what they had done, over the pain they had caused Paul. They desired to see him again. They they desired to take action to restore their relationship. Some of you may have broken relationships today that you have sort of apologized in some superficial way, but they won't come back together that way. The person will even stay scared that you'll just hurt them again. It's going to take more. It's going to take some zeal. It's going to take some heat. It's going to take some intensity of effort to reconcile. I mean, what do you do when you have hurt someone? And There may be something going on in your life right now. I mean, all of us from time to time get snarled up with people we care for, but when you have injured someone, is it your practice to just mumble an apology when pressed, but then fail to do the work of restoration and rebuilding? You know what I'm saying? There may be some incomplete reconstruction projects represented in this room right now. The Corinthians renewed enthusiastic support of Paul and then their effort to reconnect with him encouraged him. And so he declared at verse 7, I was filled with joy. An important effect of repentance is that it results in transforming sorrow. Verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful to you for a little while, probably longer than a little while. Paul knew that his words caused these Corinthian people sorrow, sadness, despair with his confrontational letter. And, and, and even though he said, I, I, I didn't feel sad to send it, but then he said, but I really did. You ever felt like that? Well, I'm, I'm going to send this, but I really don't want to. And he's torn. Because he cares for these people, 
And he may be a little bit afraid of their reaction because the rejection will be painful. And so he's torn about what he should do, but he sent it. Titus delivered it. And so while he's waiting on Titus to return, he's worried that he might have made things worse. Now, Paul wasn't a harsh disciplinarian. He wasn't an angry preacher. You know, I think sometimes you don't see it as much today, but and some of us that have been around a few more days, it used to often be in vogue to have really pretty mean preachers. Remember that? And it was called righteous preaching. But you know what it was? It was angry preaching. And anger of a man or woman or anger of a pastor doesn't carry out God's righteousness. So if you ever sense from me or anybody else that what I'm saying is just driven by some anger that has nothing to do with you, dismiss it. But Paul wasn't an angry preacher. He loved these people. He took no joy, no pleasure in causing them pain, even temporary pain. He was rather motivated to write this painful letter by his love for them. And his love for the gospel truth. As well as his concern about the consequences in these people's lives. If they didn't get confronted and brought back to truth. He says, now I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurt you but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. They felt painful remorse and regret. And it caused them to recognize they were on the wrong path. That they were following false teaching, that they were rejecting the truth and Paul along with it. Now, what they felt wasn't just embarrassment. Because someone can confront you and it'll embarrass you that you were wrong about something. Even humiliated. But you can be embarrassed just by getting caught or getting exposed. And your pride can be wounded But often, if your pride is wounded, you just fall into self-pity and become defensive and withdraw. But that's not what happened with these Corinthians. They weren't just embarrassed. They weren't just humiliated. They didn't just have their pride wounded. What happened to these Corinthians was that their distress and their regret was real. It was appropriate. It was accurate. It led to repentance. A change of mind and direction resulted when they turned from falseness to truth, from sin to holiness. It was the kind of sorrow God wants us to have. Does that sound right to you? Does God want us to be sorrowful? So you were not harmed by us in any way. See, this was mourning, then transformation, then healing. And that's what occurs when the Holy Spirit exposes sin. Because what happens is you're no longer torn about what you should do. When the Holy Spirit confronts sin, he reveals the situation. And suddenly you're convinced 
There's no vacillation. That's not repentance if there's vacillation. If you can't make up your mind, that's not that's selfishness. That's not that's not repentance. Because when the Spirit shows you the truth of a situation, you don't have any excuses. You don't have any justification. You don't blame anybody else. It didn't just happen to you. You're not the victim. And anytime any of those things emerge, it's not repentance. You're just a person standing there. What do you think, Roland? Exposed naked before a holy God. That's what happens in repentance. Verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. You don't believe that, do you? Mike, you think God would hurt your feelings to, to make you repent? Do y'all believe that? No, no. Doesn't God blow kisses at all of us? That's what our culture thinks. And yet this passage clearly says God wants to bring pain into your life, into my life, to lead us away from sin and result in salvation. And then he says, there is no regret for that kind of sorrow. God intends for us to feel deep, painful sorrow for our sin. Be careful if you are comfortable with your sin. Because what it means is you are far from God. Now in our culture, people always say they're close to God. Our behavior shows whether we're close to God. But when we have sorrow for our sin, it produces repentance. And repentance precedes salvation. And repentance returns a sinner to Christ. Do you remember that day when you experienced that painful conviction? Do you remember that day? That preceded your salvation, that showed you yourself, that returned you to Christ. Say, here's here's what I think. Again, this is a thing you can think about. You don't have to accept I think we speak much of salvation happening by just agreeing with some facts and no conviction occurs. You think? And yet I don't find evidence in the scripture that salvation occurs apart from conviction of sin. Because think about it. Salvation is regeneration. Regeneration is the Holy Spirit of God just entered you. And when he came in, what did he find? Because the holiness of God suddenly contrasted with the state of your life before. Do you remember that? That's why we don't, we don't ever want to go back. I remember my conversion well. Now, I grew up going to church. My mother was a godly woman, and and I went to church. You know, we had Sunday school church, and we had training union in church in the evening. We had sunbeams on Wednesday night. We had Wednesday night prayer meeting. We had, I was in church. And, And I knew the gospel, and I knew a lot of Bible. But I didn't know the Savior. And I was living this duplicitous life. Because I could quote everything. There were a few Christians I knew. But I knew three times the Bible they did. 
so I could shut them down, see? They really knew Christ, but I knew a lot of Bible. But I was an utter hypocrite living two lives. And upstairs in this old house on Main Street in Statesboro, Georgia in college, long hall, shadowy, it was past dusk. And God told me, you are a man of unclean lips. And I was living a lie, a duplicitous, two-sided life. Does that sound like a pleasant experience to anybody? It's a terrible experience. And a wonderful experience. Because it's like Paul said, it, it, it was painful, but it didn't last long. I didn't leave my apartment for three days. I didn't go to class. I didn't take tests. I really feared God because I knew how long, how much truth I had known and how diabolical I had lived knowing all that truth, how divided I was. Now, now I will certainly allow that your conversion may have been less, less torturous than mine and you may have been less deceitful toward God than me. But if you're a Christian today, then there was a time when you had a personal, intense encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. That's the only way to be born again. You may have happened, it may have happened when you were young. You might not can point to a day. So I, I'm not trying to make you doubt if you know today Christ and it shows in your life. I'm not, I don't want you to, I'm not trying to undermine that. I'm just saying if you're saved today, the Spirit of God has regenerated you and flooded your soul with a holy being. You can't be double sided. Or you'll be like Paul and have no peace. <laughs> you can't get settled. You remember, you couldn't get settled. Didn't even know why at first, did you? Now, here's the problem. Not all sadness or sorrow leads to repentance, to Christ, or to salvation. Latter part of verse 10. This is a frightening passage. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So in other words, you can, you can feel that embarrassment. You can even feel guilt, remorse, regret, shame, resentment, anguish, despair, depression, hopelessness. You can feel all of those emotions. But if they don't lead to repentance, they lead to destruction. Those emotions actually will lead you away from God in resentment. I've seen people who were exposed in a situation and they just acted angrier toward God. And they pulled away. Because when it's God's spirit, you're, you're, you're going toward God. You may crawl over, you may stumble over, you may fall over. You're going toward God. But if you're just angry and it leads you away. And what you feel is self-pity. Or, or, or you've come up with excuses or, or reasons or justifications, you are headed straight for spiritual death. I mean, that's what it says, isn't it? Did I, make, did I put that in there? And spiritual death is 
ultimate separation from God. It's separation now, but it hardens into eternity. Confrontation by the Spirit leads to sorrow. It does. Which leads to repentance. A change of direction. Which leads to to salvation. Don't you think we need to see another awakening? I mean, don't some of us, have some of us, have we just filled with icicles and complacency? You know, we, we're sort of halfway get, getting back to service and some people are still afraid of this or that. And I'm not saying that the, the virus and, is not serious, but, but where are you? Because what I see is in all this illness, whether you agree how serious it is or the vaccine's good or the vaccine's bad, those are, none of those are my issues. My issue is that people gave up on being involved in a fellowship for a year and a half, some still. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you're afraid. Health-wise, that's between you and God. But for a lot, we just became more complacent. So we show up less frequently. We serve none. And Satan loves every bit of it. Folks, our, our community, our church, ourselves, let me back that up, ourselves, we need to be revived. Our church does. Our community, our country, our world. But you know what? It's not going to start till it starts. I mean, how many of us want to feel some conviction about something? Some of this, how many of you want to? How many want to? Because here's the thing. It's going to take something. Let me ask. I mean, how does it happen? Well, it happens by the Spirit. And you don't totally control the Spirit. John 3 says he's like the wind. But you know what? We can ask for him to come. I want to ask you, let's call on the Spirit. Will you do that five minutes? Start the morning. Five minutes. How many of you are willing to do it? Give me five minutes in the morning. Start out calling on the Lord. I don't care if it's when you're in the shower. I don't care if it's when you're brushing your teeth. It doesn't matter. Driving your car. Five minutes. Because we've, we've got to get ourselves, our church, our community moving in a direction. And it's going to come by prayer. You know, we're seeing a few extra people joining us on Sunday morning. I call that group the watchers because we're, we're watching out for our church. We're watching for our community. We're watching for our world. And we're praying for God's spirit to work in our midst. One start with me. God, expose the sin in me first. Knock out the complacency that lingers in me. But I want to ask you to join me and ask God to remove it from you. And we do have a role in confronting sin, our own, but others, just like Paul did. And we're called to carry it out. But you know what? It shouldn't be something we enjoy. If you enjoy confronting people, you need to sit back. It ought to be something you really don't want to do. And so when you carry it out, it's reluctantly, it's carefully, it's cautiously, it's motivated by love. Never, never, never anger. If you feel anger about it, don't attempt it. You're not ready to. But when we truly love someone, you know, we flip this thing and we're thinking, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want them mad with me. That isn't love. That's cowardice. If we love, love requires us to do what is best for another person. Spiritually, relationally, emotionally. Even though that person might 
reject you when you try. That sounds to me like what Jesus did. See, you, if we are going to fill this role of, of confrontation that someone might be reached by the Spirit, we have to be willing for them to reject us over that very issue. You know, parents, sometimes parents are scared to confront their own children. And when their children take a, a path away from God, then they regret that they never ask the questions. They never put the limits. We cannot fear rejections from the people we loved. We must fear not confronting situations that God shows us need to change. Another effect of repentance is readiness to correct wrongs. Verse 11. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Paul was excited when he heard about the Corinthians' repentance. And and it's interesting, he listed a number of effects that result from repentance. The way these believers responded when they repented, and it begins at verse 11. Such earnestness. Earnestness is you being eager. When you realize I'm in the wrong place, I'm doing the wrong thing, it's time for me to change directions. And you have this haste, this motivation to make things right. No complacency. You know what, if you're, if you're at odds with someone that you love, don't walk away. They might push you away, yeah? Let them do it, but, do, but be motivated by love. Such concern to clear yourselves. In other words, you know, when you, once, once the Spirit hits you and you realize, I'm in the wrong place. I've got to change now. You, I, I, I'm gonna, I got to scrape this sin out of, out of my heart and life. I've got, I've, got to, I've got to prove myself trustworthy again. Because you know what? We have to trust each other. Believers have to trust each other. And when one of us takes the wrong path or goes astray, none of us can trust. Such indignation. Indignation here is, is outrage about my own sin. Have you ever done that? You did something and you're angry with yourself that you would do that, that you would dishonor God. That's what that means. Angry about the shame I brought myself and maybe that I've brought other people I care about. Such alarm, and alarm is the, is the awe of God, and you suddenly are frightened. I remember that painful night in that hall. My thought was, God's going to destroy me. I don't, I'm not saying you have to, have, have to mirror all of my experience. I'm just telling you, I suddenly saw God and I saw myself. And it frightened me what God might do to my life of disobedience. Such longing, and that's why it says alarm. Such longing to see me. The people wanted to come back into relationship with Paul. Not wait around. They wanted to immediately repair the relationship. Such zeal, and that was zeal for holiness. Is that what you have today? Do you have, do you have passion for holiness? It means we need to cut some things out of our lives, don't we? Such a readiness to punish wrong. Truly repentant people 
Remember, when you're repentant, you suddenly know what truth is. You know what right is. You know what wrong is. There's not any debate anymore. Well, you're willing then to carry out justice in a situation. But it also means this. You're willing to accept the consequences you've earned. When someone gets exposed and they're trying to blame somebody, trying to excuse, trying to rationalize, that's not repentance. You see, that's just getting caught. When you're repentant, you just say, do whatever you need to do to me. And you say that to God, but you also say it to someone you've hurt. I'm not talking about physically beating somebody, of course. But, but you don't start, you know, how somebody will say, well, I'm sorry, but don't you dare confront this. We've heard that, haven't we? That's not repentance. Repentance is I deserve whatever you have to say to me. And then verse 11 continues, you showed me that you have done everything necessary to make things right. When we repent, and maybe in God's spirit may be just sensitizing you right now to a matter. But if you're in the midst of that process, are you eager to correct wrongs, to repair relationships? Or do you say, well, let's just turn the page. Let's just sweep this, you know, let's just, let's just move on. Turn the page, move on is not repentance language. Please forgive me. Let me earn my way back. That's repentance language. Verse 12, my purpose, he says, then was not to write about who did the wrong, which was Paul's accuser, or who was wronged, which was Paul himself. He wasn't seeking vengeance. I wrote to you so, so that in the sight of God, you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us. This English translation is kind of backwards. He says, I wrote so you could see how loyal to you are to us. What it really means is I wrote so you could see how disloyal you are to us. He's saying how loyal, but he, they were unloyal. But that's why we need to speak words. We need to ask questions. We need to, you know, it, it's okay when you have a friend or someone you care about who's, who's caught in some sin. And you say, what are you doing? How'd you get here? Do you belong to the Lord? Well, then what is this behavior? Because you ask questions so that the person can see himself. So that the person can see herself. Because you can't force people into repentance. You certainly can't force people into salvation. So you ask questions. You pray that the Spirit exposes. You ask questions so the person can see their own reflection. That's what Paul did. And Paul's letter was used to show these people how far they had fallen. And when they saw it, they turned. Have you drifted from God? Have you drifted from God? Is it time to repent? Because if, if he's convicting you, his conviction is an invitation back. When there's no conviction, you're in a far worse place. When you're experiencing conviction, painful as it may be, that's an invitation home. Will you return to the Savior? And then he closed by saying, we have been greatly encouraged by this. Folks, I hope that we all experience conviction 
of sin. Every one of us, including me. And because of that, we walk in greater holiness and passion and zeal toward God. But also that God's Spirit convicts some that don't know Him. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they know the facts of the gospel. But they've never had that personal encounter that's life-altering. That's what we pray for. There'll be counselors here, care volunteers. They'll be in the care connection room. They'd be happy to talk with you, to pray with you. And let me urge you. I hope that you will. I know sometimes when I ask you publicly, I may put you on the spot, but I'm pleading with you. Let's all pray together. And I urge as many as you as will, join us, you know, maybe even once a month. Take, I'll let you wait a couple of weeks and come the first of the month. But let's pray. I want us to pray our church out of complacency and call on the Spirit of God to begin revival. Revival is overdue in this nation. It's well overdue. But it's going to come through the voice of our prayers. Every revival in history does. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would Lord, I pray that you would convict each of us of complacency, of laziness, of sin that we've tolerated, of carelessness, of lack of passion. Lord, I pray that you you would speak to each of us and that you would draw us into that burning zeal of loving and serving you again. Save many, I pray, in Christ's name. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get in contact with our connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood Church app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.